This is not my country. I have lived in America for 1,762 days. That is four years, nine months, and 28 days. I Googled it. I live 1,867 kilometers away from home. For those who grew up on the wrong system, that is 1,160 miles. I live here, I assimilate, pero no soy de aquí. I do not belong here. I was not born here. This is not my country. I was born in Parral, Chihuahua, Mexico, in El Hospital de Jesús. I grew close to my mother, visited by my abuela, having enchiladas de Doña Cuca on Thursdays with my grandpa, yendo al parque to ride my bike with my father. That is my home. Sometimes I forget this and feel like I belong here, but you remind me that I will never fully fit in. When I meet you, I see the panic in your eyes. But, but your English is so good. You get uncomfortable because you cannot put me in a box. The questions continue. You ask, do you speak Mexican? I say, it's called Spanish. You say, uh, no way. You're not really Mexican, are you? I am. Stop lying. I'm not. You tell others, I don't trust her because her English is way too good. I give up. You have taken my strength away. I am done justifying my existence to you. I do not have to share my story with you. I am tired. I am done. So I walk away from you and try to find my own. Do you know that in LA, I am the majority? There are millions of others just like me. I met 90,000 of them cheering for El Tri as the Coliseum was dressed in red, white, and green. I eat tacos in East LA with them. I scream, vamos doyers, at the stadium with them. I speak Spanish to the people behind the counters. I befriend those who you do not see. I tried to make this place my own, yet this is not my home. There is a song that every Mexican living away from Mexico knows by heart. México lindo y querido, si muero lejos de ti. Que digan que estoy dormida y que me traigan a ti. México lindo y querido, si muero lejos de ti. My dearest and loveliest Mexico, if I die away from you, let them say that I am asleep and bring me back to you. My dearest and loveliest Mexico, if I die away from you. My home is the land of corrupt politicians and great tacos, a country where we can acknowledge the bad without denying what is good, where we cheer for our football national team only when they win. It is the country of beautiful oceans and mysterious ruins, la tierra de los mayas, aztecas, zapotecas, Mixtecas, Raramuris, Purepechas. The land that was conquered by Spaniard, divided into colors and classes, where men sing drunk songs asking for forgiveness for their affairs, yet bring better mariachis to their moms and to their wives. Where we sing Cielito Lindo until our lungs hurt after every single celebration, every single concert, every single game. Mexico is the country that after the 2017 earthquake united to help a city in distress 
where taqueros went to the street to feed tacos al pastor to people lifting rocks. It's the country where strangers help you like you are family because in a magical way, you are. Where parents always prepare a little extra food in case someone else needs to be fed that day. Where tortillas are made by chubby hands and salsas are crushed into glorious flavors you will never be able to imitate. Where secret recipes are passed down generation to generation and you feel lucky to be in on the secret. Mexico is broken, yes, but it is beautiful. It is a country with a violent history and an uncertain future, but it is the place where no matter how bad it gets, there is always hope. Mexico is the land I call my own. So if a wall you must build, if hate you can't help but spread, one thing I will ask of you, if I die away from home, please tell everyone I was just asleep. Welcome to the Protagonistas. Alrighty, so I am super excited to have my cat and stuff here. <laughs> so I don't know if you guys ever hear or ever listen uh, in the background of some of my episodes, if you can hear my cats. In the background, and I'm like, shh, shh, you should see me. I'm like going crazy, like trying to throw them across the room. Anyway, so I'm really excited to have Steph here. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you could see us, but um, I like recording in person. It's so much fun. More fun. More fun. Um, so I I'm excited to have Steph here because she has a very unique experience. As you heard in her poem that she just read, she is Mexican and. Um, her experience is unique because she was born and raised in Mexico and she came to the States recently. And she'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, but I think that her particular situation, uh, her parents are pastors, specifically her mom. And I know that a lot of people that I've had on the show, they either grew up uh, believing that women, you know, couldn't preach or teach or lead. And then they eventually, you know, got to a place where they were okay with that and now they're kind of exploring that journey um but Steph is unique because she grew up with like mega mom like power woman and so I'm just interested to hear a little bit about that so if you want to tell us a little bit about your background a little bit about yourself yeah being born and raised in Mexico and then I specifically want to hear about your journey um from there here as an adult yeah, well, thank you so much. We had talked about me be, me being on the protagonistas, and I was like so excited when you say, "Okay, come!" I was like, "I'm I'm in." Um, yeah. So a little bit about myself. I grew up in Mexico, born there, raised. Did my college education. Uh, it usually throws people off because they expect me to have some uh, super thick Mexican accent. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> my my dad grew up in the states, so he did speak a lot of English at home. I do have a lot of uh, things where it comes up that I, that you can tell I'm not a mm. local because I, in Mexico we don't distinguish between B and Vs. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, Justin Bieber. And the people are like, that's not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so that happens to me a lot. But I grew up in Mexico. One of the things, as Kat mentioned, my mom is, well, both my parents pastor a church in Mexico, but growing up, my dad traveled a lot. He had he had a lot of 
speaking engagements throughout the country. And so my mom was pretty much the one who was pastoring the church locally. Mm -hmm. So he would come preach, but a lot of the the work that was done from the ground, building and, you know, all of the hard work. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, not to say he didn't do part of it, yeah. but she was the local presence yeah. there. Um, and whenever I talk about uh, expectations and preaching and women in leadership, for me, it was uh, the opposite of a lot of people's experience. My experience was different because it's not only that I believe that women belong in places of leadership, it's that I was expected to be just as good as both my parents. Mm. So when people, yeah. when I preach, people would come up to me and be like, you do this like your dad, you do this like your mom. Yeah. I'm like, that's too much pressure. They've yeah. been in ministry for like 35 years. Yeah. I cannot, but that's been my experience always. Like people yeah. expect that because they are my parents that I have this level of, of preaching. So I've always tried to, be super orderly in my in my messages when I preach like my dad, but I also have, bring the fire like my mom because yeah. uh, they are completely different. He's you know, he's this very structured uh, like man, and she is just a firehouse. Like yeah. she just brings the power. People like, whenever she preaches, people are like, I don't know what we just learned, but my life is not the same. And oh, that's, that's always awesome. the joke in the house. That yeah, she will like just go through the whole scripture and just bring it. And she's a fantastic. They're both fantastic. So I always had that expectation. And, you know, growing up, one of the things that was a shock for me coming here to the States is the term pastora. Mm. It's just such a normal term because, I mean, you do have, like, pastor's wives. Mm -hmm. But for most of the people I knew, and I grew up in the big churches I went to, both, uh, I mean, the couples were always... Um, pastoring together oh so there was always like pastor y pastora like always always so even if like the the man was like the main pastor like still the woman was still also always considered a pastor yes but not even that like there were churches where i mean that, that was mostly the experience but there were churches where it was just the woman leading okay. uh, either single or a widow or so i it, it was never an experience where i thought that 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 place or that space is not available for me. Yeah. I was the one that didn't want it because yeah. I'm a PK and PKs like to go against their parents' will. Yeah. <laughs> they would always look. So the thing that I, the compliment that I would always get, that I would always get was, you have a very pastoral heart, therefore you should be doing this. Yeah. You yeah, are yeah. a good preacher, but more than that, you inherited your mom's pastor heart. So yeah. my dad is always, when, when people talk about them, they're like, oh, your dad's the teacher, she's the pastor. Mm. Because she she has this thing that she learned from her pastor, from her pastora, Gloria Richards, she would look back and know who is in the building and who is not, and then she mm. would connect with her like squad, and they would reach out to whoever didn't show up to church. Whoa. So you can't miss church without that woman noticing. Yeah. And <laughs> so she always, so people always felt seen and heard and, and yeah. Cared for. And, Cared for. Yeah. Um, so that's what she brought to the table. That has always been, like, my greatest... I think that one of the things I've learned the most from her. Yeah. Uh, and again, even with all of that care and hard work, also super great preacher. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so you didn't... Um, it was never, like, an it, obviously an issue or whatever that your mom was a, a pastor but did you even know that there was that big of a deal like here or like i'm sure through social media and stuff like that but did you like or did you feel it when you came or that was just something like you got here like oh whoa wait a minute you know like i think i 
felt it when I came and I started listening to people's experience mm-hmm. and it automatically, I think it opened my eyes to see even just how much resistance my mom got because oh, okay. she protected us from a lot of it. They both mm-hmm. did. Uh, but like, as I started to think about it, I'm like, oh, wait, like people were giving my dad credit for the things she did, oh, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. And he would have to... Like, he, he would always kind of give the credit back. Like, yeah. no, I didn't do that. That was her. Mm-hmm. But it, the automatic assumption was, yeah, he, him doing it. I'm like, there were summers we did. We, he was traveling around the yeah. country. Who do you think was pastoring at that time? Yeah. Uh, but people would. I think, I think that coming here opened my eyes to see kind of just how hard she had she yeah. had it. Yeah. Uh, even being the powerhouse, being the, the yeah. church founder. Like, she got a lot of uh, pushback that we never, mm-hmm. we were never really exposed to. Yeah. Therefore, we didn't resent ministry or what she was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, coming here, it, it's heartbreaking. Because you, I mean, out of all the problems in the world, like, the one thing you have to focus on is, no, but women are the problem. Mm-hmm. And you're like, really? Like, yeah. it's not... That guy who was molesting children, he's exactly. like the problem, you know, is yeah. these women who are trying and giving their lives to serve the Lord. Exactly. And, and this obsession of like, let's find more ways to limit women in mm-hmm. ministry. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how is this Christ-like? Yeah. So that was a very big chalk for me. And I, I think for me, it, it has, I've just tried to listen more. Because mm-hmm. um, I don't, I didn't live that because yeah. I was protected from yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. It, I'm not saying that it didn't happen and there are a lot of places where she can't be herself in Mexico. I'm just saying that she protected me from a lot of that. Totally. Yeah. And so I know that in like Cuban culture and like Caribbean, like machismo is like a big thing. And I, I don't want to just like lump it in Latino culture. I know like it's, you know, different in different places. But what ha- what's been your experience with machismo in Mexico? Um, is that like a thing as it is every other, you know, a lot of other Latino places or... I think so. Yeah. I would say so. You have a lot of the social structure where, you know, women kind of took the abuse mm-hmm. because they didn't have a place to escape. Yeah. They, you know, our grandma's generation, they didn't have income. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they, even if our grandparents were yeah. abusive, the, our granddads, they, they literally could not escape. Yeah. Yeah. And it was seen. So it was worse to divorce your abusive husband mm-hmm. than to take it one for the team. Yeah. And I think that in that way, moms have a lot of mothers in Mexico have created a codependency on their sons mm-hmm. as a way to, you know, escape yeah. the reality of the abuse they're receiving from their husbands. Mm-hmm. The church I grew up in always felt very countercultural to that. Oh, that's awesome. Because that was one of the pushbacks that a lot of, even a lot of the men in church would get from from the platform. They were mm-hmm. like, you have to stop idolizing your mom mm-hmm. and actually see your wife as your equal. Like, oh, love your wife because yeah. all these men were, like, repeating the cycle. Wow. They, they might not have been beating their wives anymore. Yeah. But the cycle was the same. It's like, my mom gets the priority, mm-hmm. you're secondary, so then that wife has to you know, create mm-hmm. that dependency on their son. And so it's just a vicious uh, cycle yeah. of, I guess, a different type of machismo. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. Okay, so you had mentioned that um, you felt a lot of pressure to, like, be, you know, to carry, I guess, you know, the, the legacy of your of your family. 
So what was the moment that you decided like you didn't want to do that or you didn't want to be in or not necessarily be in ministry, but you didn't want to like be a pastor. You didn't want to like, you know, specifically do that. Was there like a moment you realized that where you're like, I'm done with this or you just knew it all along or there's still a chance that you'll end up there? (laughs) As my very wise mother has said, it is your destiny. Stop running away from it. So (laughs) right now, not (laughs) what I'm doing, but I don't see myself not. Okay serving in some capacity I think it's just in my DNA yeah (laughs) it's been put there and so my husband who is definitely not called to pastoring he's always like oh you pastor I'll support you like we'll we'll figure it out yeah I can do the music and you can just preach Um, so so apparently even in that way I can't I can't run away from it (laughs) yeah yeah so it actually even growing up I remember there were a lot of people in the church that there was something that I saw happening in Mexico that had happened here a lot, especially with like purity culture and the mm. effects of it. It was this kind of push to be perfect in order to be able to belong to this Christian group. Yeah. And that I've always thought of to be very, again, not Christ-like. Yeah. So people would, if, you know, if a person joined the church and they still cursed, because mm. which is a big thing in the church in Mexico, I'll say, really? or they would, you know, have some sort of, I don't know, some, some, I will say pass. They will say, they would have a yeah. pass. Um, there was always this like, oh no, like who is this person joining? I'm like, I'm sorry. I yeah. think the church supposed to be like mm-hmm. the place where people can come with like their brokenness, with yeah. their past, where all, with all of the things yeah. that make us human. So I would be the one pushing back against mm-hmm. the, I will say the pure, the pure and the holy. Yeah. <laughs> they hated me. Gosh, I was that PK that, whenever they wanted to, you know, like, we're like, so great. I'm like, are you, are you, are we? Because we shouldn't be. So I was the, I was the, I think that my sense of justice would kick in when people try to exclude people because they weren't as pure or like as pretty or whatever they thought. I'm like, no. And since I was a PK, I got away with a lot of it, but was able to create space where people that did not fit the profile. Totally. Totally. And so, um, how did you, I know you, you talked a little bit about how your parents protected you from a lot of just crap. So what would you say as far as like not, you know, growing up as a pastor's kid and like, because I know a ton that, you know, are like, screw Cannot. the church. Yeah, they're Cannot just like, do I'm done by like, you know, how did, um, yeah, how did you not end up like not jaded, you know, because you went to seminary. I mean, you're still doing the thing. So like. You know what? How what would you say? Um, maybe something that your par- the way your parents raised you, and I'm sure, of course, Jesus and like the yeah, Holy Spirit. Definitely a lot of grace <laughs> from God. Yeah, but I don't know. You know what other ways or things made you not jaded? If that makes sense. Yeah, I think I do have to say we owe a lot because that we are one of the things that people talk about. In my family is that the four of us are Christians. The mm-hmm. four kids, okay. which is very rare in a PK family. Yeah. You have at least, you have one that, yeah. you know, stayed in church and other three that are ready to burn the yeah. building down. And for a lot of them, I get it. Yeah. I get it. PK, PK struggles are real. <laughs> <laughs> but I think my parents were very intentional in making sure we were a priority and not mm-hmm. the church. So mm-hmm. we, I never felt that I didn't matter. Yeah. There were times that it was very annoying to be a PK, especially at the end of a like long Pentecostal service. And I'm like <laughs> hungry. I'm like, I don't want to be here anymore. 
feel like once I learned how to drive, me and my little brother were out of there the moment they said amen. We're like, we're going to go get food. Uh, so I think that that helped a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think it was a lot of protection. We were never forced to go to church, oh, which was a awesome. big thing. Yeah. And uh, very sad story. I had a friend who cannot, she cannot go to church anymore. Mm. And I get it. Yeah. Because her dad would receive criticism from the church mm-hmm. they would write notes on the envelopes and be mm-hmm. like your son's kid your your son's hair is too long no oh my god you either cut his hair or you stop receiving my tithe oh my and, the, and instead of you know ripping the envelope uh, the dad would mention the criticism at home oh. and so these kids were completely exposed yeah all of that those criticisms that i'm sure we had because yeah. i i am the worst pk you will ever meet <laughs> i was too loud and too just you yeah. know extravagant i am a seven <laughs> and, and all of that uh, i never i never knew yeah i never heard it they yeah. my parents were like this complete protection and faith was very it wasn't imposed. It, it just, it was very organic in my home. So we would, my mom would sit with us every night mm-hmm. and we would read scripture, mm-hmm. three, three chapters every day. Mm-hmm. And she had like the markings in her church. And that was very significant. I remember, like I have this vivid memory of me just sitting down as we were reading the Psalms and falling in love mm-hmm. with the words and the poetry and yeah. just the stories. I, I thought it was the most beautiful thing. Yeah. And I think they, she formed a lot of that in us. hear about your transition from uh, Mexico to the U.S. So you came in 2014. Mm-hmm. So just talk to me about that experience. I was living back home uh, for a short period of time and I had this deep conviction of helping pastors in Mexico write their own stories. Mm-hmm. I realized that over and over again when people are like, oh, I need a book on this topic, mm-hmm. we, we would recommend some translated book. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, these like pastors, these pastores, pastoras have lived here, have given their lives, yeah. have worked so hard for 30, 40, 50 years, yeah. and no one's writing books. So yeah. I had this deep conviction in my heart that I needed to come to the States, well, to get the education, to get the seminary education, so I could help these pastors write books. Mm-hmm. I did not want to be, this was very important for me, I did not want to be that PK that's like, hi, you know my dad. <laughs> can I like write your book? <laughs> I wanted to be like, hey, here are my credentials. Like I can actually yeah, do yeah, this yeah. for you and let's serve the church together. Mm-hmm. So I did, in that way, I did not see myself using this degree for pastoral ministry, but to help pastors, to support uh, all of those the pastores, pastoras that just have these deep, intense stories of faith yeah. that have never been put to the paper. Yeah. So that was the conviction that tried, and I prayed for it when I when I first felt it from God. I prayed on it for three months. Wow. I didn't say anything yeah. to anyone, and then I talked to I talked to my parents. I talked to a few pastors that mm-hmm. are friends with us, and they were like, uh, "Absolutely, like yeah. this is so important." And my parents were like, we support you 100%. Like, this, if this is the calling on your life, and we think it's just such a... Because it, it, it felt very selfless, in a way. Because mm-hmm. my name doesn't matter as yeah. a ghostwriter. Okay, so that's Shout out to ghostwriters out there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure there are many listeners that are ghostwriters. But mm-hmm. my, you know, my name doesn't matter in the book. It's just mm-hmm. this tiny thing. What yeah. matters is a story. What matters is to get our voices out there to help yeah. the church. 
So most of the resources in Mexico, you would say, are just American authors and then just translated into Spanish. A lot of it, yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating to me. Why do you think that is? Like, do you think it's just, uh, I don't know. I think Mexico does not have a reading and writing culture as big as the States. Mm -hmm. Or I will say, I'll compare it to Europe, as big as European. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not that common. Okay. So there's a lot of music that is made in Mexico. There's a lot of, there are other resources. Like artistic and there's other mm -hmm. expressions. Yeah. But when it comes to books, it's just not as often. There's a lot of material that has been developed there. A lot more like, um, kind of like the, the, the curriculum for, oh, okay. for a lot of other things. But books, when it comes to books, it's, it's very limited. Mm, that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. So I think that's cool. I, I actually didn't even know that that was specifically why you why you went to seminary. So that's like really, really inspiring. So actually, it's like a perfect segue. Um, if you want to talk a little bit about what you're doing now. And I still want to talk to you about your experience when you yeah. got to Mex when you got here. But I think um, talking about like the whole writing thing, the artist thing, like a little bit of what you're working on now. Yeah. So... Part of what happened with the calling to writing these books, my parents uh, have this publishing company that publishes textbooks mm -hmm. for uh, Christian education from kindergarten to ninth grade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how that's how far. And uh, talking about expectations, mm -hmm. high expectations, he was like, "This is your legacy. Like, mm -hmm. I want you to do this." Yeah. This when I was 15 years old. This was a while ago. <laughs> and I was always like, no, I don't want to do that. But I realized that part of serving this this purpose that I had received was to kind of use what my parents already had. Yeah. And that's, you know, talk about metaphors about life. Talk yeah. about what they had already worked on and then use that and have a kind of like an extension that would be my own publishing yeah. company that's under this other big okay. one. Perfect. So in the last year and a half... I have been working writing textbooks mm -hmm. from, and they've they've made me now I'm the the editor in chief for this Yay, company. Congrats. Thank you. <laughs> and first grade, I wrote first grade Spanish language from first grade to eighth grade. Wow. Working on ninth grade right now. Crazy. In a year and a half. Oh so do not write eight books in a year. <laughs> it will drain you a lot. Uh, thankfully, yeah. I have a very supportive, nice husband who cooked many, many meals so yeah. I could focus. And at times of crisis, went and bought us pizza and we survived. But yeah. And eight books were written. And in the same way, part of the conviction that I had uh, rewriting and writing these books was to present the kids with their own stories. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the material had been inherited and translated, and they were more of a distribution than an actual editing house. Mm -hmm. So again, this was American. American translated. That is so crazy to me. I remember you told me that they were, it was like Christopher Columbus, and like, that is insane. Like, that was like the history. Oh, there are some things. <laughs> there was this one particular book, just a, a, an example. I think it's like math for fourth graders and mm -hmm. every single story because you have like little like oh did you know and yeah. you know all these tiny things they were all stories about British white men 
I'm like, what is a tiny human in the middle of nowhere, Mexico, need to know? Like, why yeah. do they need to know these stories? Wow. And that happened like, over and over again. Yeah. So I was like, that's what they're internalizing at a tiny young age, like that these like British white heroes or whatever, like these European heroes. And it's like, well, what about their Mexican heroes? <laughs> like, what about yeah? Like, there are no if if all the stories you present are are white male. Mm-hmm then only white male are actually able to achieve things, yeah. right? So why do I even try yeah. if their only possible heroes in this history of the world yeah. are them? Are them. Yeah. So I started pushing back on that a lot. And I started, I had to do a lot of research. I know a lot about Mexican heroes now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had to do a lot of research, not only, and not only Mexican, a lot of Latin American heroes, yeah. authors, uh, muchos cubanos, yeah, great authors, yeah. I'll say. Yeah, you, you guys do a lot. Yeah, they really yeah. do. A lot of protest writing, and that's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so you have a lot of a lot of these stories of their own heroes. I started writing, and then I started writing stories about kids with disabilities, making mm. sure the images were very inclusive, yeah. every color, every theme. Because I was, I need to. I felt that it was also an opportunity to start building empathy and mm-hmm. making and not even that just having kids see happy images of kids on wheelchairs happy yeah. images of blind you know all these yeah. stories that a blind kid who be, well Louis Braille I don't know how to say mm-hmm. the name in English well it's French name Braille uh-huh. Braille who at 12 years old created the system for for blind people to to read the yeah well, the system is under his name, but I, it's, but yeah. I put it in the story, like, you know, the story of a blind hero. Yeah. And yeah. for the, the kids when they were their age, so yeah. they're like, oh, I can, if, you know, if yeah. he can do that, I can do this. So just completely changing the narrative of what they're hearing and the stories they're hearing. A lot of um, female authors, mm. just, just to change the story and expose them to how wonderful they can be. Yeah. Representation matters so much. And especially, yeah, when you've only ever seen heroes that don't look anything like you, that aren't have nothing to do with, like, your country. Nothing at all. <laughs> <laughs> like, they have literally nothing to do with, like, your existence. But yet, like, that's who, yeah, and that, I mean, that's, yeah. that's I, hard. I think one of my favorite stories we have, we got a review from this homeschooling mom who has a kid with a learning disability mm. and he said that he as he's seeing this images of kids yeah he felt comfortable for the first time yeah. he felt that a pressure was taken off because he also yeah. he was seeing himself in the book yeah and was that's able beautiful. to learn better than it with any other book he's ever learned i cried yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. no, that's beautiful that's that's such important work and yeah. so thank you for that for real that's like really important work um and it's just so cool that it's stuff that we may not even really think about right like mm-hmm. mexican curriculum like it's like for the history of whatever it's been American in curriculum just translated into you know so mm-hmm. it's just like these little new these little details um, yeah. that are just so important mm-hmm. um, okay so anyway back to back to America <laughs> <laughs> so back, back to 2014 you know you moved to the states two years later well actually a year later you know um, the campaigning for the yeah. election starts. And it gets ugly um, yes. as far as the wall and immigration and all of that. And so what's, what was your experience or all of that? I know you shared a little bit about it in your uh, poem, your mm-hmm. spoken word. But just, yeah, if you want to so, unpack it. 
moving to America was a cultural shock like mm-hmm. no other. Mm-hmm. I come from a, such a tight community and such a communal space. Right? I'm, you know, being able to just call people and show up at places, and all of yeah. a sudden, I have these friendships when they're like, "I will have coffee with you Thursday next week for two hours. Is that good?" And I'm like, uh, "What?" Like, wait, wait, that's like, tonight. I've like, tried to create community, and they're like, "I'm going to schedule this two weeks from now. You get two hours of my time. Lucky you." And this is because I consider you my friend. If you were only my acquaintance, oh, you would twenty it. minutes. Yeah. Oh my god! It's probably the shock of like, why are these? Like, why is that about time yeah. and community? It's so limiting. It's the, like the depth of the individualism in this yeah. culture, like, wrecked me. Wow. Uh, a month in, I drove to Tijuana, called one of my friends there, and ate chilaquiles and cried. And I was like, <sighs> I need to see someone that knows me for more than a yeah. month that actually, like, wants to. And yeah. it wasn't personal. It was just that. Yeah. Like, they, this girl was genuine, like, she was so generous with her time for giving me yeah. two hours every two weeks. I'm yeah. like, I, thank you. <laughs> An hour, like, at once a month. Yeah, 9 to 11 <laughs> on Thursdays. That was, every other Thursday, sorry. So that was a cultural shock. And then finally, I start, I find the way to break into these structures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The only way I can do that mm-hmm. is through food. Because I'm a gift giver. Yeah. And I, and then, but gifts, gifts make people very uncomfortable. <laughs> because if I give you something, I'm trying to be, I'm, I'm giving you something. That's yeah. it. But yeah. they're like, oh, no. I'm Wait, to, what do I have to give you? Yeah, yeah. I have to give you something back. I'm like, oh, it, it, no. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about you, so I yeah. wanted to give you this. Yeah. And so it made people very uncomfortable. So that was two months of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Long months of my life. Um, <laughs> And then I realized food. Food mm-hmm. was my way in. Because okay. food does not make people uncomfortable. And everyone mm. loves Mexican food. So yeah. I started cooking for people. And I, I, I brought people together. I'm like, yeah. here are enchiladas. You guys come to my house. And we're going to do this my way. Yeah. And so I completely <laughs> break into these systems and awesome. these structures. And they're like, oh, wait. I can hug people when yeah. I say hi to them? Yeah. <laughs> yes. You don't have to do the awkward hi from away. <laughs> the wave. Yeah, the way from far away. So as I'm trying to happen, then, uh, you know, the announcement comes. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that happens is, like, Mexico is sending this and this and this, that. And, you know, the rapists and criminals. And I'm like, oh. And so yeah. I go to the cafeteria, and this lady who, again, no one talks to but me, starts crying. And she's yeah. like, my the father of my baby, she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. She's like, the father of my baby, like, made a mistake years ago and has redeemed his life. But for that yeah. thing he made 15 years ago, he's at risk now. Yeah. You know, all these fears and things start coming up. I see people uh, just crying, and it's, it's, a, it's a crisis. And, I, you know, the, the people that were in denial, they were like, oh, that, it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. I knew it was going to happen the moment mm-hmm. I saw it. Like, I was like, oh, that, yeah. I knew it. Because yeah. um, a few years before, a Mexican telenovela star, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, a, a, the president the candidate had married a telenovela star and that gave him the win because all of these people are like, ah, so telenovelas are for Mexico what reality TV is for America. Yeah, yeah. The moment I saw him, I'm like, that's a reality TV star. That dude has it. He, yeah. And he did. Yeah. And he won. And the hard part, I think, once once it was announced that it went, was the statistic that 81% of ev- white evangelicals had voted. Yeah in favor and that wrecked me yeah. like I was like I felt 
so horrified. Mm-hmm. I was like, what yeah. are you guys doing? And yeah. especially it's like all these people that have sent their kids on mission trips to Mexico. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to process all of this, as I said in the poem. So I, I started being funny about it mm-hmm. because I just can't cry anymore. I'm done. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I need humor. And I see people in Mexico who are that our currency got a hit just because of him winning because mm-hmm. his campaign was based on hate for yeah. Mexico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'm, I'm hearing the reality of Mexico just being hit by this yeah. and the fear in the community here and all these things and then and then people being just happy about it and, mm-hmm. and rejoicing for people's pain. It just wrecked me. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I think part of a lot of people... The, the, the other thing that happened is, you know, a lot of people reacted and were trying to, like, get away from the image of the of evangelicals and try to create... But then they went to the other extreme. Mm-hmm. And I remember being told, like, I, I mentioned in the poem, I was shunned by in groups because they were like, why are you, why are you making jokes? Mm. I'm like, uh. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm from Mexico. We make jokes. It's not... Yeah. I'm not diminishing. And yeah. people push pushed me back and they were like, you don't understand what Mexico's living. You don't understand what immigrants feel. I'm like, okay, Susan, <laughs> neither do you. <laughs> like, thank you. Uh, yeah. So it was very frustrating to, to have pushback. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people have experienced it, especially as some of the, the people that went, you know, that, that left that, they, those communities have now kind of appropriated people this pain. Mm, yeah, I think that's, an, an unfortunate thing with um, a lot of just those sort of movements of like, yeah, you know, we support you and like, I, I don't remember where it was that I just recently read where or I heard where someone's like, yeah, you'll wear like a Black Lives Matter shirt, but like you won't have an actual conversation with, with like a black person about black lives, yeah. you know, or like, yeah, it's like, oh yeah, we care about immigrants, but then like, okay, well then let's talk, like let's sit and like, you know, <laughs> here, bear my burden, like bear my pain, like, or just try and understand what I'm feeling. And so, yeah, I think that's the unfortunate thing that it's a lot easier to like say you stand for something or to say that you're about something, but then when it comes down to it, like, do you really, you know, mm-hmm. um, like I see a lot, like a group of, um, well not a group, a lot of, of you know, white liberals or just people who, who are like, yeah, we're so woke and like, we're so whatever. And then like, but they only ever hang out with like other white liberals, yeah. like, you know? And then I see like all the people of color, like just hanging out together and then just like, yeah, woo, you know, like we support you. But then it's like, but, but also stay at your table. Yeah. But like stay over there. I'll stay over here and I'll shout over to you that I support you, you know? Yeah. Um, yes. One of the things that was frustrating for me, especially seeing it in some of the Latin churches here, mm-hmm. is, is people are like, oh, now we care about immigrants. Like, it's our new, it's the new it's thing. The it's new the cool thing. thing. Yeah. You're like, uh, Hispanic churches have been doing the work yeah. for all these years. Why not listen to them? Let's see what they've been doing, what's yeah. working. Nope. Let's start yeah. a new thing because we just discovered it and it's cool. Yeah. So you had these two extremes and I'm here in the middle like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was rough. Yeah. It was rough for a while there. I started, you know, I pushed more to find people that that knew how to listen. Yeah. You know, it's not about where you stand. It's about this deep conviction of, of the other, whoever the other is should not be the other because the image of God is in this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how do we then love? How do we follow the stories of the heroes? Um, 
Lisa Sharon Harper yeah. had this. The she wrote on Twitter about not leaving the faith because, mm-hmm. you know, because of what was happening, but realized that the the depth in all these heroes of the church and uh, in all these other communities that have been doing the work of justice for yeah. so long. Yeah. And why are we like uh, Christianity is the worst yeah. <laughs> instead of seeing the people who did it right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and who've done it right th- through the ages. Yeah. Yeah, there, there have been people, um, yeah, doing the work this whole time, um, unseen, un, you know, mm-hmm. overlooked, unrecognized. Yeah. Um, yeah, they've been putting in the work and they've been doing it. And, you know, now it's like the cool thing to try and do it. But then we just forget that, like, wait, they've already <laughs> been doing it. It's already been done. One yeah. also cultural shock to me was this sense of you cannot care for justice and care and have the gospel. Mm-hmm. For me, they were never separated, and I learned that all through through my life. So I come here, and then I realize there's a lot of Christians here, and I mean a lot, a lot. who separate the body mm-hmm. from the spirit to yep. unhealthy degrees. I will yeah. say, and they're like, you know, we just preach the gospel. Whatever happens, you know, anything systemic, anything, it just doesn't. Yeah, they're like Jesus didn't care about those things, and you're like. Did you not read Matthew? Like, yeah. did you not yeah. realize that not that was so yeah. essential? Yeah, that was it. Yeah, that was a cultural shock for me. Out of all of the things, dismissal of the poor, the widow, the foreign, the prisoner, mm-hmm. as a caring for the if if caring for for the marginalized as a, a p- opposition to the gospel, yeah. that's not a thing in the rest of the world. Yeah. Let me tell you, like the rest of the world does not separate one from the other mm-hmm. because that's literally what scripture says. Like that's, yeah. Yeah. that's the call of Jesus. Like that's when, when we face the throne, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, did you care for this yeah. and this and this and that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And if your answer was like, well, the God, I preached the gospel to them. Yeah, but did you feed them and yeah. clothe them? And they're like, no, because I preached the, get out of here. <laughs> Ow. Yeah. yeah. That was a big shock for me. Yeah. I can imagine. Because yeah, that's not... That's, that's only, you can only say that from a place of privilege and power, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, like, when that's not your automatic, that's not where you go to automatically, mm-hmm. you know, um, when you when you are a marginalized community, like, that's just going to be your natural expression of, like, existence is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I feel like it, it, is, it is very elitist to say, like, to uh, divorce the two, to divorce social yes. justice with with the gospel it's like do you, i am i'm sure you experience the same like a lot of the community that we do uh, it goes around food it really mm-hmm. does yeah yeah so one of the most beautiful times for me at church were potlucks mm-hmm. and part of the inspiration and reason behind potlucks is so people who cannot afford food feel just as comfortable as those who brought three platters yeah because you put those in the middle and everyone it's a free for all like and, and that's what the gospel was for me. Mm-hmm. Was For me, the most beautiful manifestation of the gospel was the moment where we all got together and the, the table is set for everybody. Yeah. And yes, I brought more of a yeah. plate. But at the end of the day, I'm going to eat the same with you because exactly. it's, our, it's, it's not it's my true. table. Yeah. It's, it's God's table and it's us getting together. Yeah. And there was never a separation uh, for me. Mm-hmm. And I... I like pushing back and making people uncomfortable and saying, no, you cannot separate that. Mm-hmm. And you cannot preach the gospel for someone who's thirsty without giving him mm-hmm. or giving her water first. You just yeah. can't. Yeah. Because they can't hear you because they're dying. Yeah. 
Amen. Amen. So the last thing I want to ask you um, is what brings you hope or what gives you hope in the church um, in general or just like you personally? Like what is one thing that makes you feel hopeful? I think what brings me hope is hearing stories of women who are trying to do the work, who have felt called, who I've been able to support. Mm. That has been something that's very important for me over the last few years. Just, I had a conversation with this woman and she's aiming to be a pastor. She's never seen a, a, a woman pastor. And I told her about my experience and she, she, was, she was invited to preach and she took her kids out of school mm. because they were like, I want them to see me the same yeah. way you saw your mom. Yeah, and it's like, cool. wow, yeah. there is hope, and it, it feels unhopeful a lot of times. Yeah. But we just we have to keep fighting. Yeah. You know, I think the world, the way of the world is just tends to brokenness. It tends to want to go back to whatever is easy, mm-hmm. and we have to keep pushing. It is really yeah. hard, but it's, it's worth it for the little girls that are coming, the next generation of girls who will feel and know that they can do it and yeah. that they belong mm-hmm. and they have something to say. Yes. Amen. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. This was awesome. Um, yeah. Oh, thank you is for your... having me here. Oh, sorry. Did I want... <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, if, if there's like, if you want to like shout out your Twitter or anything, um, feel free to do that. I tweet a lot in Spanish. So. <laughs> <laughs> if you want some Spanish lessons if you via want some Twitter. Spanish, um, my Twitter is at Steph underscore Bremer. <laughs> All right, thank you. You're welcome. Fast forward to June 2015. The day it who must not be named showed up, and it directed its message against the country I love the most. I saw that escalator, I heard that chant, and I knew. I called a friend that day and said, it will win. I knew it before anyone else could see. Its initial threat, who no one around me seemed to understand, was to force Mexico's hand by blocking las remesas, aka the hardworking money that immigrants sent home to feed their children. The livelihood of orphans was the threat, and you, America, said yes. My heart sank as I found myself trapped in a country that never wanted me in the first place. On November 2016, I cried, but not for the same reasons as those around me. I cried for the mothers and the children and the abuelas. I cried for my country because the wall was a message to me to my neighbors and to my friends, a reminder of the hate that has always been there. White conservatives told me, it's just time for America to invest in itself. I mentioned the children, but the answer was the same. It was all about the money for them. This is its country now, was the threat on your streets. Go back to your country. Do not speak Mexican here. If you don't like it, leave. I cried for the assault victims. I cried for the church. I cried because I did not want my Spanish-speaking mother to visit me in this country ever again. My world was split. The Mexican side of my social media was full of memes and jokes, 
We're screwed! The American side of my social media was full of people starting to figure out for the first time that America's racist. Surprise! Yes, your grandpa is racist. Your angry Facebook post will not change anyone's mind. After I cried, I needed to laugh because we do not cope the same way. Trying to find answers, I went to the elote man who told me that if I married his son and gave him a green card, I would have free elotes for life. For life. I still think about that sometimes. I went to a tiny Mexican store and they showed me their secret stash of piñatas of id who must not be named. I should have bought one when I had the chance. So I chose humor. I chose to be me and laugh. Little did I know, white liberals would accuse me of not caring. I was kicked out of friend groups. I was shunned by community I helped create. And as they appropriated other people's pain, I was blamed for the choice their parents made. I do not care. I do not understand. I have buried innocent friends I grew up with casualties of the cartels so people like you can get high on your birthday and you accuse me of ignorance i stood alone away from those who know me away from the place where humor is welcome when you just can't cry anymore you have reminded me yet again this is not my home 